Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Forty years ago, Mary V. Thompson began her career at Mount Vernon as a museum attendant and history interpreter. She was quickly promoted to curatorial assistant and within a few short years was named curatorial registrar, where she began researching numerous Washington and Mount Vernon-related topics, such as 18th century foodways, animals, religion, Native Americans, genealogy, domestic life, and slavery. Today, she is the Washington Library's indispensable research historian, and as many of our listeners no doubt know, she is the go-to person for all things Mount Vernon and Washington. In fact, when I joined the library in the summer of 2019, some of my new colleagues half-jokingly asked if we could figure out a way to digitize Mary's brain. In celebration of Mary's 40th anniversary at Mount Vernon, we're pleased to bring you my July 2019 chat with her about her prize-winning book, The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington, Slavery, and the Enslaved Community at Mount Vernon, which recently won the James Bradford Best Biography Prize from the Society of Historians for the Early Republic. Mary was one of the first people I interviewed when I assumed command of the podcast last year, and I was glad I had the chance to sit down with her early to learn from one of the best in the business. We talked over the course of two episodes about her experiences at Mount Vernon, her interest in the enslaved community at the plantation, and of course, her book. So after you've finished part one here, be sure to check out part two as well. And if you'd like to purchase your own copy of Mary's book, head over to shops.mountvernon.org. It really is the best book out there on Mount Vernon's enslaved community and Washington's evolving views on slavery. And like all good books, it's already inspiring new research. So congratulations, Mary, on 40 amazing years at Mount Vernon, and here's to many more. And Happy New Year to all of you out there. Part one of my conversation with Mary Thompson begins now. Well, Mary Thompson, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, We're really excited to have you here to talk about your most recent book, The Only Unavoidable Subject of Regret, George Washington, Slavery, and the enslaved community at Mount Vernon. And just for folks who might want to purchase a copy, we'll have a link uh, to our bookshop at the, on our podcast page and with details at the end. Uh, but I thought we might start actually by talking about a man we both knew and we both had the privilege to take a class from, uh, from our uh, graduate school days, and that's Joe Miller, uh, who was a professor of history at the University of Virginia, one of the uh, foremost historians of Africa and African slavery, in the last 30 years, I'd say. And, and unfortunately, he passed away a couple of months ago. And in your introduction to your book, you talk uh, quite movingly about Joe and what it was like to be in his classroom. And I wonder if you care to share some thoughts about uh, your memories of him and, and how he has influenced your work. I took um, a class called Slave Systems with him uh, when I was getting my master's degree at UVA. And it was the best class I've ever had anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we were looking at slavery in many, many cultures over thousands of years, uh, trying to sort of get to the essence of the, what slavery was mm-hmm. and still is, um, unfortunately. Um, Mr. Miller was fantastic. Um, We spent the first three days just talking about what's a slave. He had no notes. We were just (laughs) winging it and talking, (laughs) and he could always come back with, yes, but in such and such a culture, this was true. Mm -hmm. 
darn, you know. <laughs> he was he was amazing, and he and his wife had our entire class over for an African dinner one night. Oh wow! And told us stories about living in Africa with the kids, and um, they were so welcoming and nice. And he was always very caring about what was going on with his students. And, which I found was not necessarily the case with the rest of the department. And just a wonderful person, and I was thrilled when they made him. I think it was dean of students or something, because that just mm-hmm. seemed like, and he was in that position for several decades, I think. And it was a perfect fit for him, and I was just really sad when I found out that, that he died recently. Yeah. yeah, he did have that way with students, I think. I, you know, I... He, I t- had him for an Atlantic history course, and or no, I'm sorry, world history course. But I did a field in Atlantic history with him, uh, and he was always, he was extremely tough, but extremely fair. And I think, as you rightly say, he cared deeply about his students. Um, and, I, and I think you see that the tributes that have come out recently to him. And I, one of the things I wanted to ask you is if he if he did the same thing when you took him that he did for us, which is. When he would edit your paper, and then you, you know, and he would always come back with copious edits, and then you resubmitted a new draft. Did he back then have the tendency to edit his own edits? <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. We we always, you know, nowadays we submit things and track changes on Microsoft Word, and you you would see his thought process play out when he started to argue with himself in the margins of our own papers. <laughs> Um, and it was it was very endearing uh, to those of us uh, who took him uh, in the last few years. But uh, yeah, Joe was a great guy, and I was lucky to take a, a course with him, and and, uh, and you were as well. And so I, I guess from there, I'd like to ask, you know, what are the what are the origins of this book, uh, and how how did learning about slave systems in graduate school evolve into a research question that ultimately helped you? flesh out the details not only of Washington as a slave owner, but uh, equally important, the enslaved community here at Mount Vernon. Well, I came to Mount Vernon to work in the spring of 1980. Um, I was just finishing up at UVA and uh, needed a job that paid, and because um, <laughs> I'd been working as a volunteer mm-hmm. at another museum. and. They were hiring uh, interpreters for the the busy summer season, mm-hmm. and so well, it paid better than being a volunteer. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but not much. And <laughs> and I went. Um, I you know I started doing doing that. And in grad school, you know, I didn't just take you know Mr. Miller's mm-hmm. course. I, I took. Um, courses in both um, your early modern Europe and, and colonial America, because I figured you couldn't understand what was going on in America if you didn't know what was going on, where the people were coming from. Right. So um, it's kind of, Atlantic history hadn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so a lot of the readings that we had to do for for my colonial classes had to do with slavery and the development of slavery mm-hmm. in in America 
that were in North America. And so I was... Drawn to that question at, her, at an early point in your career. Very. And I got here and nobody was talking about slavery um, <laughs> on the mansion tours, on the, you know, in the outbuildings, the signs didn't even mention slavery usually. And, um, and that we period, talked about servants. <laughs> that was, that was going to be my question is that that's how they were described back in that period. If they were if described they were at all. Talked about at all. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of shocked. And, um, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. Um, and five months after I started an interpretation, I mo moved to the cura curator's office and was helping her with special projects and stuff. And so she knew, she came to know that this was an issue I was very interested in and concerned about. Um, and so a few years later, she let me start adding material to the signs about the slaves who worked in the various buildings, in the outbuildings. And we started trying to make it look like the people who lived in the quarters were actually people. and <laughs> um, To put a face on them, so right. to speak. Yeah. And so that's sort of how that began by the, now in, in, in the mid 1980s, um, I became the registrar in the curator's office, which means that I was cataloging new things as they came into the collection, and I was mostly dealing with—I was dealing with a lot of genealogy questions because we were studying the provenance of new things that were coming in. Mm -hmm. um, provenance is one of those curatorial words that means um, the history <laughs> of, of those pieces, the object, mm -hmm. and the ownership. Um, line. And um, after a few years of doing that, which also involved things like, you know, working with insurance companies and making sure that all the values were the same and doing tons and tons of inventories, I kind of felt like I was like, <laughs> um, my brain for historical stuff was dying. <laughs> and, um, and so my boss arranged for all of us in the department to have one day a week to, to pick a, a research topic mm -hmm. and have one day a week to work on that so you were oh, wow. like free of other duties. And so my first topic was foodways, which uh, was one of the topics that, that people most asked about. And we would get inquiries mm -hmm. about what were the Washingtons eating. And I want to reconnect. I want to do a dinner like George Washington would have had. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. usually when people find out the details of 18th century dinners, they really don't want yeah. to. Yeah. But retreat. <laughs> 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 but but you'd help them and and stuff and try to find recipes and and things. And um, so I, I started working on foodways, which can get you into all kinds of aspects of of life here at Mount Vernon. Mm -hmm. And so. I was, you know, copying down anything. Like, so the Washingtons are buying honey and chickens and eggs and things from there, sometimes watermelons and other kinds of you know, vegetables and fruits um, from their slaves sometimes. So, so there's a little, there's a, a little home economy going on where they're mm -hmm. they're purchasing from their own enslaved people then. Right, and that hap that was not unusual. Mm -hmm. um, there are really great records from Monticello showing the similar similar sorts of 
uh, purchases from slaves. Um, so the, the slaves and slavery were interspersed throughout the, the foodways research. And after a few years, my boss went to a conference at, at Monticello on interpreting slavery at historic sites mm -hmm. and came back really fired up about us needing to do that. And she said, could you switch, leave off food waste mm -hmm. for a while and go and, and work on slavery? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was working on that for several years. Um, and we got to around 1992, 93, and we had gotten a grant from the Kellogg Foundation to rebuild the 16-sided barn. Mm -hmm. And in the summer of 1993, we were going to have a whole slew of college-age interns coming in to actually build the barn. Mm -hmm. And... They were going to be doing a lot of work that the enslaved people here would have done. And so they needed to know more about their lives. Precisely. And so they asked me to write up um, for essays about various aspects mm -hmm. of, of life. And so I did that. And we, the next year, we worked on development of a tour on slave life at Mount Vernon. And then the following year, we debuted that for the public, so 1995. Um, now, in the meantime, early in the early 80s, we had uh, a professor from Washington State University who came to do research on slavery here at Mount Vernon. He was well along. He'd written at least one paper on it. And so we thought, okay, someone's handling, you know, Someone's doing that. It, something, yeah. And um, he ended up having, I think, family issues and mm -hmm. some medical issues and um, never finished. And later in the 80s and early 90s, we had um, another professor who was working on mm -hmm. slavery here at Mount Vernon, and her book was never done, but we kept saying to people, "Yeah, I know, we, you know, you you want to know more about right. this, but th there are books in the works." Something's coming down. down. The pipe. Yeah, and but they didn't. And then two two people, um, Henry Winsack and Fritz Hirschfeld, right. wrote books about slavery at Mount Vernon, which for various reasons I was kind of disappointed with. Mm -hmm. So when I did the four essays for the interns, um, as with anything I do, it's never completely finished. And so I just kept, as I would find material, I would add it mm -hmm. in there. And I thought, oh, well, maybe we could use something on Washington as a slave owner. You know, so then I started another one. And um, it it gradually gradually got to the point where it, I, it, it was becoming a book. It's coming something more. Mm -hmm. So this has been a uh, kind of a <laughs> slow-moving train that's really gained momentum, particularly in the last, I guess, 10 years, would that be fair to say? And then, mm -hmm. and now we're at the station, uh, it seems like. Um, 
You, you mentioned that when you really, when the genesis of this question began decades ago, and then at that moment, if slavery was discussed at all, uh, they were referred to as servants, and, and you've just sort of spoken about the ways that the interpretation has evolved over time. And, and the, the Monticello Conference was kind of a, a pivot, a pivotal moment and a, and a, and a moment to pivot to um, something that needed to be talked about and that people at other historic sites were talking about. Um, can you describe how, uh, you know, since that moment and since you began writing those essays, Mount Vernon has taken a more proactive role in interpreting the life of the enslaved here? It started off slowly with new signage that mentioned slaves, mm -hmm. and sometimes even by name, and moved on to adding material to the, the souvenir handbook that we gave out, or that we sell, and... Um, So, so slowly getting slowly into that, surely. and by 95 we had a tour for, for people who were interested in the topic, and has grown from there to um, having first-person character interpreters. Right. Um, these are um, historic interpreters who actually have a character in mind, mm -hmm. and they try as much as possible to stay in character and to stay in the 18th century when they're talking to visitors. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's gone on. We've had conferences here about slavery, some special events um, since the 90s. We've had an annual program with a local group known as Black Women United for Action mm -hmm. to commemorate the anniversary of the memorial at the slave burial ground. Oh, cool. Which went up, I believe, in 1983 um, after a, a group of local citizens found out that there was a bur burial ground here. I had been here for three years and didn't know. So it, it wasn't just that we weren't telling visitors; his staff didn't know staff either. Didn't know. <laughs> and um, so, in some ways, it's been—it's also been a community effort, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the, with the surrounding community and various partners and stakeholders and whatnot. Um, when uh, switching into the book itself, um, you know, the central figure is, is George and Martha and the enslaved community. When did George Washington first become a slaveholder? Uh, that happened when his father died in 1743, when Washington was 11 years old. And in his will, Augustine Washington left George, um, who was his third surviving son, ten, or 11, ten slaves. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he doesn't start—he doesn't actually take possession until he's about 18, but from, from the time he's— 11 years old, he's a slave owner. He's a de facto slaveholder, and then mm -hmm. you know, in, in a very real sense that when he reaches his adulthood, what, what was this, the state of play for Virginia slavery when Washington was a child and as, and as he ultimately came into sort of full legal possession of, of his enslaved people? By the time Washington 
was born um, and, and in his childhood growing up, it, slavery um, had become institutionalized mm-hmm. in Virginia. Um, we're now celebrating the 400th anniversary of, you know, when the first um, Africans came to Mount, came to Virginia in 1619. Right. And, uh, well, George Washington was born in 1732. Mm-hmm. And the institution of slavery becomes institutional, or it the, the Virginia House of Burgesses is dealing with slavery in the 1660s and 1670s, sort of building the legal framework for the institution of slavery in this colony. And, and that part of that, if I remember rightly, it's part of the reason they do so is because the enslaved population has become so significant that now they'd have to let, figure out ways to codify it and then determine who is and who is not a slave. Right. Um, and if I remember correctly, indentured servitude is still the primary mm-hmm. labor form in this period, but the the acts you describe in the 1660s are indicative of the fact that the House of Burgesses realizes they've got to figure out you know, how to manage an enslaved population going forward. Right. Um, so in the... 17th century, it looks like about 3,000 Africans were brought into Virginia. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to between 1700 and the revolution, over 115,000 people were being brought in. So we're not talking about the numbers that you know are in South, going to South America or to the Caribbean, but uh, in the local Alexandria area when. George Washington takes possession of Mount Vernon and first starts farming here in the 1750s. Um, the pop, the enslaved population is about in, in this area is about 28 percent of the total. Wow. Um, by the time you get to the American Revolution, it's about 40 percent. So slavery is a it, he's he's here at Mount Vernon and in his lifetime is living through. The largest um, increase increase in sla- enslaved people in in Virginia, and, and many of the slaves he eventually requ- acquires comes from his marriage to Martha Washington, uh, from uh, her marriage uh, to Daniel Custis. What and, and if I remember rightly, there, there's a two-year so he, they marry in 1759. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Um, what what do we know about Martha as uh, a slave master? We know, uh, of course, because she she left fewer um, paper records, we know less than Mm -hmm. we do about George's actions and his development as a slave owner. Um, She... uh, she, the, The memories of her... And the, the reminiscences of her by former slaves are always have always been very good. Mm-hmm. Um, George Washington has sort of a mixed, um, mixed reputation record. among the the slaves, but th- these um, o- older people were also talking to Martha, Martha's grandchildren. Right. So <laughs> we have to take that into into account. Into account. Certainly. But they. They talk about her kindness, and um, 
in in right in her the rest other parts of her life she's a very caring um very caring kind of person who is always doing favors for people mm -hmm. and so you get the impression that she's doing the same thing with the people who are enslaved now she can be very tough she's like george washington she expects things to be done mm -hmm. and done right she um has some very harsh things to say about um african-american people um in in what sense the nature of of black people mm -hmm. um so she's very much in keeping with this 18th century mindset that there are racial hierarchies and, mm -hmm. that, and you know, one color denotes or connotes certain intellectual and social capabilities that, that one another color does not. Right. She's also um, very hierarchical, mm -hmm. as was the society, right. about you know hired and indentured people as well. So um, she, she does bring that... <laughs> Brings that to the table as well. When you mentioned that George ha has a more mixed reputation, and in your book you you say one of the most frequent questions you get is, well, was George Washington a good master? And it seems like the, it's not, not the, the right question. The right question would be, what kind of master was Washington? And then how did that evolve over time? Um, so can you give us a sense of of how George thought of himself as a slave master and his conduct towards his enslaved people in the years before the Revolution? We know less about that period um, because Washington is here mm -hmm. at Mount Vernon and... He's not writing letters to... He's right. Not, he's not Philadelphia writing letters back home. Mm -hmm. Right. Or getting letters getting from letters. back home and weekly reports mm -hmm. and things like that. But prior to the Revolution, he seems to have been just a, a fairly typical large plantation owner mm -hmm. in his uh, tr treatment of the s slaves mm -hmm. who were here, his interactions with them. He's quite stern. Um, but you see him doing favors for people as well. Mm -hmm. So some of the slaves in the 1760s came to him and asked if they could borrow the fishing seines uh -huh. so that they could fish for themselves, and, and he let them borrow them. And um, he's, he's actively buying people. Uh, in the period between his marriage in 1759 and um, the beginning of the revolution. So lots of new people are coming to Mount Vernon at the time. He's also busy in local politics and with the, the local church. Um, so he's got lots of irons in the fire mm -hmm. and he's... Um, He's, he's he's still actively acquiring slaves. That, you know, still Very. still seeking out social advancement and economic mm -hmm. advancement uh, through politics and religion and whatnot. And certainly, when you're adding human capital uh, to your portfolio, that increases your stature amongst your fellow planters. And 
and also um, the potential for greater economic profit given the economy in the period. Mm -hmm. He's also, by the end of the 1760s, he's starting to change his focus from tobacco to wheat and other grains um, as the staple crops. Mm -hmm. And and why is that? That's because he's he's seeing a lot of problems with tobacco as a a staple. in terms of soil exhaustion and, and things well, like there's that. Um, but you, if, if you're not careful, you also get that with some of the grains, right? As long as you're monocropping, mm-hmm. and um, so what he, uh, so he, he's worried about you know depletion of the soil, but he's also worried about things like um, the economic system that they have with merchants in England, where. Um, they're kind of, so to speak, over the barrel. Um, <laughs> um, you, the the prices and stuff are set by the factors in England. Mm-hmm. Um, the American colonists are buying um, things for their homes, clothing, just pretty much everything they need because mm-hmm. there isn't much industry here in the U.S. and or the colonies. Um, <laughs> and he's. Um, He feels that, that well, there are w- wonderful letters where he's complaining about what he gets sent, you know, what he ordered and what he actually, what he got, actually got, and at the price that he had to pay for it. And he just feels like the whole system is set up mm-hmm. um, to, you know, it, to be very good for the British merchants mm-hmm. and not so much for the colonial farmers. And so, um, it's like when you're but you think you're shopping on Amazon. And you see the image of what you're buying, and then you get it, and it's something completely different. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. yeah. They didn't have two-day shipping back in that period. So. No, it was more like six months, yes. four to six months. <laughs> oh, um, you know, the, so he's always ordering like clothing for the kids, mm-hmm. for to fit a child who's like a year older than what they are exactly. when he so orders it's the things. Late. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of problems with the mercantile system that's in place, mm-hmm. and tobacco is not a great crop. And he's seeing, you know, possibilities for markets for grain in the cities along the coast of the United ah. States, in the West Indies, where they can't really grow grains, mm-hmm. and um, so so there's other markets that get you out of that tobacco economic right. system. Right, he's looking to branch out and, and expand to other markets. So all that's going on, um, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was a very busy man. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.